Hello and welcome to Experience, our ally at work. Today I'm speaking with Artie Kapoor, who has given the last 15 years of her skills and experience to a career in human rights. Currently, she is leading an organisation out of Asia that focuses on child protection, child labour, human trafficking, and leads this organisation in running assessments and finding a solution for the various actors involved in these very challenging aspects of our systems at this moment in time. Ari is also a lawyer and is on the bar in two countries. Some people don't know that. And she's also dedicated her time to developing her skills in a continuous way in order that she can be fit for purpose as things emerge in the world of work. Ari has a lot to share around experience being her ally at work. Welcome, Marty. It's it's fantastic to have you with us today. And uh, as we begin, I just wanted to ask you if you remember when we first met and did we learn anything? Can you remember? <laughs> oh, goodness. All right. Well, firstly, wonderful to be on the show. Thank you for inviting me. This is an absolutely wonderful privilege. So, um, yeah. So when did we first meet? We met... I think back in 2012, was it? And it was at my first group relations conference in Bangkok. Yeah, so uh, when I first met you, you were one of the directors of that conference. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, so that was the first time we, we actually met in purpose. No, in, actually, no, actually, person, I've or? just remembered. I met you mm-hmm. at um, an event where you were um, speaking about group relations at the, uh, the a hotel in, in Bangkok. It was an evening event. It was a kind of like a, it was an introduction to group relations. Ah, okay. So that was yeah, the first time. Yeah, okay. With Dort Dorothy. Along. Yeah, 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 with Dorothy yeah. Sheffel, yeah. who was like really, really excited to um, introduce us. And she would yeah. always, always talk so highly of you. So, yeah, it was wonderful. <laughs> oh wow! So that was. But well, I was already sold. I was already sold for the conference. Yes, anyway, she so. she Dort um, Dort was very passionate about the work that she'd done. Yeah, yeah. So that was passion, purpose, and potency. Wow, that's right. <laughs> yeah, and what a, an amazing, dramatic, and powerful conference. Yeah, yeah. Those three words alone are enough to go on with. So, so if we make if we make links to that encounter, Artie, and uh, yes, the extraordinary work that those experiential weeks are, I guess. Where does that take you in relation to your learning from experience? So, where does that take you in your mind? Well, at that time, I didn't quite intellectually understand. Like if we go back to the conference, um, I didn't actually intellectually or conceptually know what it was that I was learning. Um, but experientially, I realized, and it was the beginning of my realization and the journey 
um, to understanding that experience actually matters. Experience as in what I'm feeling right now, what is being felt by the group right now, and the present moment. And up till then, I had already been a practitioner of mindfulness. And uh, that practice from a Buddhist point of view was very much held as in an individual capacity. Um, but that was my first experience of using and paying attention to my experience in the group and that my experience was more like an antenna of what was going on in the group, what's going on in the broader system, and that it's relevant to pay attention to it. And it actually gives you some information and it gives you some data and it's not just all in your head. So that was... And it's exactly, not all just it's about Exactly, it's not all you. just about me. <laughs> Imagine. It's about... Um, the interactions and the dynamics in a group, as well as historical roles. And, oh, my God, so much, so much, yeah. So yeah. so that really learning to tune into the experience in the moment, so the feelings, emotions, responses, if you will, you've, you, you really were able to start to uh, reflect and analyse, I guess, on what's mine, what's the group, both and probably, where did that take you in terms of your professional work? So when I say that, it's all professional, but the, the work that you were busy doing in the world. Well, the biggest influence was and still is the idea and the ongoing working hypothesis that it's all not just about me and my experience and not to take it all so personally. I have always worked in challenging circumstances um, and so that's that so so there's a habit I think especially in the sector I come from there's a habit of taking things very personally and it, and and feeling personally offended about something that might happen it started opening that space and I started realizing that I'm just a, a vessel in some ways I'm part of a constellation that's constantly uh, playing out and uh, over time, and it's a process. So my part and my role is about making my decisions based on what I think is going on more broadly. I mean, I'm talking very conceptually at the moment. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Can you give us an example, Artie, that might be helpful maybe in one of the projects you've worked on or I mean one example I often use is um, say I like my current work is uh, very much around researching issues around human rights and often we'll get commissioned to go and do a piece of research looking at let's say the risks of child labor or the risks of labor exploitation in a given sector and um, you know on on occasions, you know, I'll go to another country, let's say in Africa or another country in Asia, and I'm out in the field and I'm usually the outsider coming in and I'm talking to different people, let's say about a really sensitive issue around child exploitation. And that's always going to be sensitive to talk to, whether we're talking to government, NGOs, uh, private sector, whoever. Um, and I'm there and I'm talking and I'm interviewing people around their work 
what let's say the interview goes like what do you feel you know what do you what do you see as the issue of child labor or child sexual exploitation in this country in this region or in this sector and um often depending on who's commissioned the research i will get quite a defensive response from the respondents and had this been before this work on you know understanding experience in systems i would have taken this quite personally i would have been like people are defensive they're not giving me the information they're not giving me the data that i need in order to write my research report one really interesting example is where you are being fed data that you know isn't right so observationally i know it's not right so what this this learning has enabled me to do is that observation of knowing how the respondent is feeling and how they're behaving is data in itself not just what's coming out of their mouth it's actually what they're presenting to me wholly and holistically and the way they're treating me around the whole interview that's giving me the data that there's a lot of defensiveness here so what's so that will then take me down another road which is what's the defensiveness in this country in this sector and that gives me a whole other bank of data to analyze issues around child exploitation or child labor which then will be absolutely relevant to the findings um will be absolutely relevant to the recommendations that I would give to the client you know it's not just about it's not just about assessing the risks of child labor or child exploitation in a given sector it's about how is it being responded to so what the other thing i saw around this example um rebecca is that i had to think about why haven't they offered me a glass of water when i've come from like three meetings in a row and people in this country in this culture whatever that country might be are very hospitable so why haven't they offered me a glass of water um if i don't take that personally i look at what i represent to them i'm representing an outsider i'm representing somebody who might be seen as an auditor they might be afraid of uh what i might do or say and the other conversations that i've been having around there will tell me why there is a defensiveness about it so all of this is used as data and i've actually it's actually been um a treasure trove actually um in the uh, analysis of systems and so this is fantastic i've been able to use s- systemic analysis as a way of providing realistic recommendations on what governments should do what private sector should do how ngos should behave if they really want to eradicate issues around child labor or child exploitation things like this in ways that are going to work for the system rather than this is what the law says this is the international convention on the rights of the child and therefore you should do this i mean that's just ignoring the realities on the ground so it's been it's it's just it's just it's like growing another dimension of our of our of our brains really so it's the data if you will that's present yes but possibly not acknowledged or hasn't been wasn't acknowledged previously in your practice So so I'm hearing you say that you you you're in the fields you've got different people that you're interviewing they represent different parts of the system so they might mm. or factions if you will and and you're looking at what they mm, might yes. be holding or what they might be representing in yes. terms of the position and why yes. rather than going okay these people aren't talking to me you know uh <laughs> 
what they're rude or whatever. So, so really understanding them as actors in the whole, in the scene. As actors, yes. And also, mm. and also what they project on each other. So, for example, one mm-hmm. recent piece of research we did in Nepal, like the example that was giving from before was from West Africa. Another research we did in Nepal, and um, it was about mig- migrant labor and recruitment. And one of the habits, and I call it a habit because I want to always check these assumptions, is that the agents, recruitment agents, are always really bad because they, you know, they, they exploit workers that want to go abroad to work. Because Nepal's very tricky, isn't it, around in, when you do want to go abroad, there's all sorts of hoops, isn't there, around what is, has to be given back to the country? Or is that, is that correct with Nepal? So Nepal, Nepal is one of the, um, like one of the countries that, which has a very high proportion of GDP connected to remittances. There we go. Thanks, Artie. Yep, yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. So a lot of their GDP relies on remittance income. And because mm-hmm. there is um, nervousness and, I guess, international standards that say that migrant labor, migrant workers, shouldn't find themselves in huge amounts of debt before they even arrive in the country that they want to work, um, this this has led to the, the government kind of uh, deciding that the agents shouldn't charge any recruitment fees to workers. And so some of what the uh, NGO reports I've read have done is to say that they need to enforce this law that says don't recruit, don't charge workers this fee. What we did and what I did when I was leading the research was why isn't this law working? Is it, ju- is it just about saying, right, the government should enforce this law and invest all this money and get all the police officers and labor inspectors and all and such and enforce this law? Well, Or maybe we're looking at whether the law was feasible in the first place and why did it come about? And actually, is there another way of getting to the same target of reducing recruitment fees without passing a law and telling everyone to just do it? I mean, it's a kind of either you comply with the law and it's all black and white, or you actually look at what are the forces and factors that are leading to workers being charged, you know, the equivalent of up to six months of their salary before they can even earn anything for themselves. So then we have to look at the systems. So how are the agents working with the governments and what are they projecting on each other and what they're blaming each other for? Um, you know, a lot of finger pointing going on rather than, so that's it's what's been really helpful in, in understanding socio-analysis and systemic analysis, unpacking what they're projecting onto each other. What do you mean by projecting, Artie? So demonizing, demonizing the agents to say they're all really bad. They're just all exploiters. Mm-hmm. And actually when, you know, and then, and then the government passing this regulation without even consulting the agents. And actually when you go to the agents, they say, look, we, you know, we, we need to earn a living. You know, we understand there's lots of malpractices going on, but there's actually another way of doing this where we can come to an agreement together. And this happens a lot, I think, in the human rights world where, you know, you have the uh, international conventions, you have the laws, and they're not enforced. Mm-hmm. And is it just about making rules and enforcing them? Or is it about looking at what forces and factors are in place and how these systems interact with each other and actually building a plan where you're changing you're understanding the behavior, mm-hmm. not what's being said. You're understanding the behavior. And then you're looking at what drives those behaviors. And this is where we come from. So this is the kind of analysis that I've now been able to do 
since that whole journey started from that first group relations conference in Bangkok in 2012, when I saw how people in that conference were interacting with each other, there was a huge tension going on between, I think, one participant and the other director, Bruce. And it was unpacked. It looked like it was a thing that was being talked about, but it wasn't the thing that was being talked about. The tension was coming from a historic ancestry roles between um, Protestants and Catholics. And that hadn't even been mentioned in the room. And when that was named, all of a sudden, you know, all this tension came in and then it was released. And all of a sudden, you're able to come back in the room and actually look at the task, you know. So those are some pivotal moments. So when yeah. the when the uh, unseen but known in a way forces and factors were influencing the behaviours, uh, that had to be attended to is what you're saying. Yeah. Before, yeah, yeah, before exactly. the work could be resumed, if you will, because it become became the work it, it, or the distraction. Yes, because <laughs> yes. otherwise you're denying what's in the room. It's like all this conversation about race. Mm. When people say, I don't see colour, it's denying. Yeah. It's denying it. Mm -hmm. But it's in the room. <laughs> That's right. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, and in what ways is it influencing what we're doing here is a, right. is a great question. Yes. You know, rather right. than pretending that we're not carrying different parts. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And different representations and different identities. Yeah, yeah. You know. So, so with the capacity to, I guess, Name the unseen but known, <laughs> if you will. That's I know that's a long sentence. Uh, where where has that taken you in terms of impact, Artie? So, in this work that you're doing in human rights and children's rights, what's been the impact? So, do you feel that you're making progress, um, getting useful outcomes? You know, the point, if you will. Yeah. Well, before. If we say before and after, before I used to feel pretty disillusioned, you know, with um, the state of affairs, uh, let's say a, a standard, a human rights standard around, let's say, um, labor issues, and it's not being complied with. And you're just seeing it from the point of this is the standard. And then we go to a country, whichever country we might be talking about, mm -hmm. Malaysia, Thailand, Indonesia. And it's like this standard isn't being applied for. And then everybody will just blame the government. You have to enforce this law. I mean, I was using this example before. But that, is, that just gets to a very intransigent point because there are only a limited amount of resources, capacity that any given government has, particularly if it's a country like Nepal or Cambodia. And then you've got... So, what, so now what this systemic analysis has allowed is for us to look at not just this is the law and this is why you must comply, but actually look at behaviors. So everybody knows this is the law, but why isn't compliance happening? Um, it's not happening because uh, it was unrealistic in the first place. So what is actually realistic? Rather than saying, you know, child labor is really bad. We've got to eradicate it now. Well, that's not realistic. Let's look at a 10-year plan, a 15-year plan, and look at let's say, child labor in West Africa in the cocoa sector. If we have a realistic 15-year plan and we look at all the different elements um, and change 
and 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 um, change the drivers over time, we're going to be at a much better position than if we are reactive and we're stuck in this um, law versus compliance, and the two have to match. It's it's it, that is that is working with that's denying the unseen. The unseen is that. There's not enough education systems. There's not a basic access to school in West Africa. Let's get the education system sorted out first. Stop looking at child labor. Let's, look, let's step back and actually look at education for the next 10 years. Then we can come back to child labor. So this, um, that's, it's kind of opened up. It's opened up the horizon and it gives us more space and it gives us a lot more options about how to tackle something. Um, and when I am able to speak for, speak like this, given all the technical experience I had from before, and now using this whole other dimension of systemic analysis, I'm able to speak with a lot of confidence because I've already spent 20 years or so in the field. So now I can say, I can actually say, look, this is what is possible in 10 years, 20 years. Um, so yeah, it's given us a completely, given me and my team a completely different edge, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. completely different edge. Yes. And and do you feel that um, this experience, with this experience, you're able to influence the partners that you work with? Yeah, because they realize, because they feel stuck. They feel stuck. They're like, how are we going to change the situation? And I say, you know, we do it like this. And isn't this more realistic? And it makes sense because it resonates because you're bringing Mm -hmm. the, like you said, you're bringing the unseen into the room because when you start pointing out the unseen things, it's not like nobody else has seen them too. And there's almost a kind of sigh of relief because they're like, oh, we can bring those things in the room. I'm like, yes, we have to bring those things in the room. Otherwise we're being unrealistic. We're just looking at a concept, Mm -hmm. but we're not working in a concept. We're working in, in a society where things are complex. What I find is that people are afraid to lean into that complexity. Mm-hmm. But um, so it's, it's, it's like a, another muscle. But because we use that muscle and we present the complexity and then we provide a, you know, a kind of recommendation through it, it is, I think, you know, like my clients, our clients find it a sense of relief. And that is because they genuine that's when they genuinely want to find a solution and 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 so that's why it resonates it makes sense the difficulty is when people still want to stay in the denial and they don't want to bring the unseen in the room uh, because it it feels messy yeah and they want a report stitched up and work finished by the end of the week and uh, you're talking about a 10-year transformation of west african education exactly Yes. So, so does that mean that um, in that example with the cocoa, that uh, the employers and the cocoa producers they then have an opportunity to assist in what's possible in the educational yeah. piece, rather than perhaps continue to unwillingly collude or otherwise with yeah. the current yeah. system. But it's a sigh of relief. I remember when I was presenting this idea of let's get back to education and it was a world cocoa conference uh in 2016 and the west african governments were all in the room and there had been an assumption that parents of these children need to be educated about not taking their children to the farms and and what i presented was that do we really think 
that these African, West African farmers um, wouldn't send their children to school if there was decent schools to send their children to. And, you know, all the West African government counterparts in the room were all in complete agreement that we're, we, we, of course, we need to trust that all parents, wherever they are, would prefer the best well-being for their children. And acknowledging the role of the parents is, you know, just as important as looking at the children. You can't look at children without looking at their parents. You know, children and families go together. And um, and that was that was a real, I think that was a real turning point, I think, in terms of getting the feedback about what I was presenting. Was it really controversial or not? And all of us, like, and it wasn't. Everyone's like, of course. And it was like, is that really, isn't it really obvious? that we have to talk about this, mm-hmm. like talk about the parents. Yeah, it was interesting because up till then, you know, the sector, both the cocoa and chocolate sector and the governments were under huge pressure to do something about child labor now. You know, around 2000, you know, all hit the press and they had to do something now. And uh, what what followed were reactive kind of projects. Really, it should have been a 10, 15 year plan, I think, that went through education route first and foremost and made sure there were decent schools for children to go to and that's not the solution but it's a big part of the solution it's bringing the unseen into the room i think mm-hmm. yeah well this it that, that's sort of an example of the seen but not observed <laughs> like of course you can't see children without their parents but we choose not to in you, you know we were choosing not to yeah. And sometimes maybe it's I find that with Asian project like projects in Asia too, there's an assumption that maybe people are different in Asia or in Africa. In terms of them being <laughs> in terms of being linked to their children or just generally, what are you talking about? About how you would like for, okay, sorry, I'm gonna give you another example. Yeah. Rebecca, is that all right? Yeah, of course. Okay. So another another example is where 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 most of the time Westerners want to come to Asia mm-hmm. and they want to go and visit an orphanage. Or they want to go and visit a school. Oh yes. And they're like, you know, we want to we want to be able to give some donations. We want to, you know, and they're in, let's say, Cambodia or Vietnam or whatever for a few weeks, and they want to have this experience of, you know, helping these poor little children in in orphanages. And I, I, I and and some one of the things I say to them is, would you ever go to an orphanage, even if one existed, in your own country? And uh, and if not. Why not? Is it because you're not you wouldn't be allowed, which usually you aren't? <laughs> but could you walk into a school in the UK or in the Netherlands or in the US and just go around starting to take pictures? Of course not. So why is it okay to come to Asia and do it here? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. that is the kind of thinking. It's a different standard. Um, it happens between Asian countries too, um, but there's a different standard for people that are seen as as the other. Yeah, it's a it's a dehumanization of some type. Yeah, so so, so that's the th- so that's the thing, isn't it? Mm. If you don't see children with their parents in a, in another country, but you see children with their parents in one country, why why are we doing that? Mm-hmm. So yeah, great questions, and um, that's a whole that's a whole other realm, isn't it, <laughs> But I it is, it is yeah. with that we could talk about for hours. Uh, why, in terms of your own, so the, what you talked about in terms of your practice was fantastic. So starting to shift how you were seeing the different, um, actors, if you will, and the forces and factors that influence them. What would you say 
beyond not personalizing everything, which you said is endemic in the sector, what else have you really had to shift in terms of how you work based on your experiences? So for you in your own practice. Yeah, one has been to pay attention to how I'm feeling and the emotions that are coming up, how my body and my biology is reacting to something and trusting that it is telling me something. (laughs) And it's not just all about me. It's telling me something about what's happening in the system. Mm -hmm. And, uh, yeah, trust. I think trust. Can you give an example? So using your body as a resource, that'll never take off, Artie. The mind... (laughs) Has always been privileged, hasn't it? But um, yeah, but so using your body as a resource, can you give us an example? So again, I guess I could take it from one of the projects. I wonder if this would be a good, I mean, obviously I, there's lots of examples I could take from my team, but if I take it from one of the projects again, I was in um, Malaysia and uh, I, was in t- I was doing a piece of research and um, I was with my Malaysian consultant and we were going up. We just stopped for a quick coffee. We were early for a meeting and then we got in the lift. We were already in the building. We got in the lift and we're going up to, to this interview. And all of a sudden I started trembling. I started getting really anxious. And I was like, what on earth could this be? Is it the coffee I've just drank? And I just said, it must be the coffee. You know, I've just, it must have been a really strong coffee. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yes, that old chestnut. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And then I get into the, we get into the room and this person, you know, just launches into us. Really? Um, Yeah. She just completely uh, attacked, you know, not, not physically, obviously, but attacked our credibility and and uh, and said what what uh, what um, uh, credibility what experience do you have working in this field working in this country why are you even here why have you been commissioned to do this you know you aren't you you, you guys aren't qualified etc cetera, etc cetera. and um, and it was funny because going up in the lift I actually said to my consultant I feel, I, I, I don't know what's going on I feel like I've, I'm getting ready for a fight. and yeah and that was really interesting because I did not did not connect it to this interview that we were going up walking towards now I will trust those instincts but in the room it was just like okay so this is what it's about like the fight or flight mechanism was already you know going off my it's like the antennas already out there so this is something I get a lot where I have the feeling before the event. Oh, wow. Okay. It's almost like, yeah, this is something that I've noticed. And I know that different people have different um, different um, propensities or capacities in this way. But that's where, uh, that's one example of where, you know, I trust the feelings. There's something happening in the system and that I trust it. Um, so when that happens now, I just become very vigilant and become very aware in the present moment of what's going on and just preparing myself for what might arise in any given moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's a, yeah. it's a flag for be on, come to attention, Artie. Be, yes. <laughs> please, please notice what's, what's about to happen or is happening. Uh, so it's, yes. it's sort of like, but without becoming lost in the anxiety, I guess. So. Yeah. And sometimes a feeling isn't mine. So that was, a, that was a, that was an example of where that was going to that was coming out in a direct interaction between me and this other person. Mm-hmm. 
But other times I'll get that same feeling, but it isn't mine and it isn't going to come out from my interaction with another. I am picking it up because I'm facilitating a group. Yeah. And so I'm actually picking up somebody else's feelings. Mm Mm-hmm. And when I don't realize that I'm actually picking up on somebody else's feelings, I misstep, I think. But when I think, okay, whose feelings am I picking up here? What is, you know, then that's, that just takes me to a whole other dimension because then I, if I'm able to speak to it and bring it in and use it as a communication of uh, intersystemic issue or something like this, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Then, then, it gives, then it gives me a whole other understanding of what's, of what's going on. Yeah. That that reminds me of particularly in your sector where you're working with your organizations that are uh working at very challenging issues if you will. You know, like it's not easy work yeah. in terms of human beings. Um that reminds me of of you know the feelings that the group might have based on the work that they're doing. Yeah. you know, that they're commissioned to do or the purpose of their organisation. And, and I think sometimes we forget that the work that people do is can generate all sorts of feelings. It's not just feelings about the other humans in the room. Yes, exactly. And, and that's so yeah. valuable, I think, to remember Absolutely. when we're encountering groups. Exactly. And in this field... Um, you know, you'll remember that I wrote a thesis on this, but it's almost like the field of work that we do, let's say we're working on labor rights or labor exploitation. You know, I've been seeing directly how that can be mirrored within an organization. Oh, yes. The very issue that you're working on in the field can be mirrored inside the organization. So if you're a women's or, you know, women's rights organization, you know, you'll be fighting for women's rights out there, but inside the organization, um, you won't have any maternity leave policy. They may. <laughs> That's not funny. I've ha, seen ha. this. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, but it's amazing. Yeah. Uh, or you're working on anti-trafficking issues, anti-human trafficking issues, um, but within your organization, you don't even issue work permits for your own staff. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. So, so this is another thing that I have been very aware of in my agency is making, being very clear about the contractual boundaries and agreements between all the staff and all the team and all the consultants being very clear about what what's getting paid for what and having a very open and transparent communication around that and and actually saying in the room like this we have to be aware of this because these are the issues we're working in in the field yeah yeah um so you're mm. sort of talking about the the residue or uh the challenging aspects of what the organisation does, imbuing the organisation itself is is how I'd think about yeah. that. Yeah. So having to pay attention to what we're busy transforming outside, yeah. is, it yeah, present, exactly. is it present here? Yeah. Yes, and do we need to transform it inside, not only intrasystemically in my agency, mm-hmm. but also intrasystemically with the very client mm-hmm. that we're working for? So if we've agreed, you know, 40 days of work. Yeah. Um, and they and they end up, you know, expecting 80 days of work for us. And let's say the project is on labor exploitation. Yeah. Well, what do you think you're doing now with us? Yeah, yeah. You know, like <laughs> And 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 as an agency, <laughs> we really can't collude with that because we no, wouldn't be doing exactly. our transformative work. Oh, exactly. Yeah. This is it. Yeah. And this is one huge deal in our organization. It's like that boundary has to be clear. 
because otherwise we are just getting into the same path. How are we going to change things out there yeah. if we can't even do the transformation here? Yeah, yeah. So that's ongoing attention. Those boundaries wouldn't be already set. They'd need ongoing attention, I guess. Yes, you'd, atten- you'd have yes. to be very vigilant around. Yeah, and obviously we we lose. You know, it's a balancing act the whole time. Oh, yeah, we don't. We don't. We can't just get it right in all the time. No, no. Well, <laughs> well, none of these issues are sorted, are they? So it's an ongoing step-by-step no. step process. So, Artie, as I'm mindful of coming up to time, what what does all this mean for where you are right now in terms of your world of work? What's what? Where's this taken you when you're thinking about this conversation and where life has led you? So, you know, it's, well, right now, it's just a continuous balancing act. You know, I run, I run a small but very busy consulting agency. And it's a continuous balancing act in terms of doing the task of the deliverables and the outputs. And at the same time, developing myself and the team and the systems uh, to be able to work with this, uh, you know, systemically and understand patterns and themes and make working hypotheses. I guess my edge is perhaps around getting, I think, a bit deeper into how how to work with anxiety in a systemic systemic way um, and realizing that I must trust more, you know, what, Trust, I think, trust more in, you know, the processes that are unfolding and keep remembering that, you know, I'm not in control of. Not much at all, really. All. Probably nothing. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Depending on yeah, which exactly. lens you use. Yeah. But, you know, the illusion, the illusion of control. Yeah. Um, and that balance yes. when you're leading and managing a you know, a very complex operation. And making sure one of the things that has been really important and which has been working is the relationship side of things. Making sure the relationships, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, not just the role relatedness, but the relationships are also good and strong. Um, and that, and that's, you know, at the end of the day, we're all human beings, you know, mainly, you know, trying to do the best that we can. So, and we might get caught up in systems, but when we meet again in other systems, we can present ourselves very differently. So it's that humanness that I, that keeps me, I think, keeps me, that I think I need to remember more of my own as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that um, particularly in the current time, anxiety is absolutely everywhere because that's what yeah. you started with, you know, and uh, part of being human is how we manage collective anxiety at the moment our own the anxiety of the work we're trying to do as you know arising from the work we're trying to do so yeah so I guess being able to create space to even have that conversation yes is because I went part of what you're doing yeah because I did go to the other side where I wasn't trying not to take anything personally and I think now I've come back to a middle ground where you know I do let the personal in some of the personal, uh, and as well as the systemic. So, yeah, that's where I'm at right now. Yeah, more of a it's both and. What yes. do I need to actually 
understand as personal and and what is systemic and how do I work with both those things, not split yeah. them off. And, and, and of the other, whether yeah, yeah. it's my t- team members or the clients, you know, yeah. 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 Well, Artie, thanks so much for taking the time because you're probably you. one of the busiest humans I do know. <laughs> <laughs> well, I always love talking to you, Rebecca. It's always just, it's always so enlightening and insightful and, and all of those things, yeah. So well, thank, thank, you. thank you, Artie, and um, I'm sure we'll have many more conversations.